in Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 3. The Lord gave this message to Zephaniah when Josiah, son of Amon, was king of Judah. Zephaniah was the son of Cushi, son of Kedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, says the Lord. I will sweep away people and animals alike. I will sweep away the birds of the sky and the fish in the sea. I will reduce the wicked to heaps of rubble, and I will wipe humanity from the face of the earth, says the Lord. I will crush Judah and Jerusalem with my fist and destroy every last trace of their Baal worship. I will put an end to all the idolatrous priests so that even the memory of them will disappear. For they go up to their roofs and bow down to the sun, moon, and stars. They claim to follow the Lord, but then they worship Molech too. And I will destroy those who used to worship me, but now no longer do. They no longer ask for the Lord's guidance or seek my blessings. Stand in silence in the presence of the Sovereign Lord. For the awesome day of the Lord's judgment is near. The Lord has prepared his people for a great slaughter and has chosen their executioners. On that day of judgment, says the Lord, I will punish the leaders and princes of Judah and all those following pagan customs. Yes, I will punish those who participate in pagan worship ceremonies and those who fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. On that day, says the Lord, a cry of alarm will come from the fish gate and echo throughout the new quarter of the city, and a great crash will sound from the hills. Wail in sorrow all who live in the market area, for all the merchants and traders will be destroyed. I will search with lanterns in Jerusalem's darkest corners to punish those who sit complacent in their sins. They think the Lord will do nothing to them, either good or bad. So their property will be plundered, their homes will be ransacked, they will build new homes but never live in them. They will plant vineyards but never drink wine from them. That terrible day of the Lord is near, swiftly it comes a day of bitter tears, a day when strong, even strong men will cry out. It will be a day when the Lord's anger is poured out, a day of terrible distress and anguish, a day of ruin and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet calls and battle cries, down go the walled cities and the strongest battlements. Because you have sinned against the Lord, I will make you grope around like the blind. Your blood will be poured into the dust, and your bodies will lie rotting on the ground. Your silver and gold will not save you on that day of the Lord's anger, for the whole land will be devoured by the fire of his jealousy. He will make a terrifying end of all the people on earth. Gather together, yes, gather together, you shameless nation. Gather before judgment begins, 
before your time to repent is blown away like chaff. Act now before the fierce fury of the Lord falls and the terrible day of the Lord's anger begins. Seek the Lord, all who are humble, and follow his commands. Seek to do what is right and to live humbly. Perhaps, even yet, the Lord will protect you, protect you from his anger on that day of destruction. This is the word of the Lord. When uh, a husband finds on his wife's mobile phone hundreds of photographs of his wife with another man and numerous, countless texts from his wife to the other man declaring undying love. Do you think he's likely to say, well, that's very interesting, but hey, my wife's entitled to her privacy. She's entitled to do her own thing. And uh, I don't think I'll even mention it to her. I think it's pretty unlikely. I think what is much more likely is that the husband will feel very concerned about his marriage. He'll want to know immediately what's going on, feel deeply upset, betrayed, jealous, hurt, and angry. He would probably demand that his wife never see this other man again, stating that he is unwilling to share his wife's love and devotion with another. He might consider taking decisive action, possibly initiating separation leading to divorce. None of these responses would surprise us, many of them we'd expect, because marriage is a unique and exclusive relationship between one man and one woman, and there is no room for another person in the marriage. As we read the words of the Lord's prophets in the Old Testament, marriage is the image the Lord repeatedly uses to describe His covenant relationship with His chosen people. Jeremiah was instructed by the Lord Go and shout this message to Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. I remember how eager you were to please me as a young bride long ago. How you loved me and followed me even through the barren wilderness. Marriage is a covenant relationship, a mutually binding treaty in which the husband and wife make promises exclusively to each other. One of the striking things about the moment whenever a couple face one another and hold hands and make their vows and place rings in each other's fingers is the fact that it is so exclusive. There's just two people, no one else. The Lord tells us if we want to understand our relationship with Him, then we should look at that marriage bond. As with marriage, heart-to-heart -heart intimacy between God and His people is only possible if all third parties are ruthlessly excluded. 
So we shouldn't be surprised when we read of the Lord's response to the unfaithfulness of the people He had chosen to be the bringer of hope to the nations. He felt deeply upset, betrayed, jealous, hurt, and angry. He was angry about the fact that they had expressed their trust and devotion to man-made images. He demanded that they completely do away with their worthless idols because He had created human beings for an intimate relationship with Him, one in which He would pour out His abundant love and protection, and they in response would worship Him with all their heart and soul and mind and strength, fulfilling their calling of demonstrating on earth the likeness of their God in heaven. Sadly, the Lord's people repeatedly refused to be faithful to Him, and so they became less than human and consequently treated others around them as less than human. We may wonder why again and again when we read the words of the prophets, why are these two things held always side by side, the worship of idols and treating the poor with contempt? And the answer is they always go together. When we worship idols, we become less than human because we become like that which we worship. And that then causes us to treat other people as less than human, which is why Christ tells us to love ourselves if we want to love other people. It has to be right in here before it'll ever be right in how we treat other people. The two accusations the Lord leveled against His people were those two things, the worship of idols and oppression of the poor. Sadly, as warned, separation and divorce occurred with disastrous consequences all for God's chosen people and also for the idolatrous nations of the world. Zephaniah had voiced the Lord's warning. Soon I will stand and accuse these evil nations, for I have decided to gather the kingdoms of the earth and pour out my fiercest anger and fury on them. All the earth will be devoured by the fire of my jealousy. And yet the Lord continued to declare His message of hope in future reconciliation and restoration through Zephaniah. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. For the Lord will remove his hand of judgment and will disperse the armies of your enemies. And the Lord himself, the King of Israel, will live among you. At last your troubles will be over and you will never again fear disaster. On that day, the announcement to Jerusalem will be, Cheer up, Zion, don't be afraid. For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take great delight in you with gladness. With His love, He will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. From the perspective of the prophets, looking ahead to the day of the Lord's judgment and restoration, 
the horizon may generally have been of a time just a few decades ahead. The prophets we've been reading about this week, the words of Zephaniah and Nahum and Habakkuk and Jeremiah, they warned the people of the southern kingdom of Judah that if their nation didn't turn back to the Lord, they would be brutally conquered by a foreign nation. They even named that foreign nation Babylon. Babylon wasn't even the greatest superpower in the world at that time, but the prophets foretold that they would be the ones that would carry out the judgment of God on the people of Israel. That judgment happened in 580 B.C., when the Babylonians ruled into Judea. They slaughtered the people. They burned the city. And they destroyed the temple. Yet the Lord showed them through the prophets that judgment was not the final word. And that judgment always has a purpose. It's to put things right so that restoration can happen. Imagine for a moment that I'm Zephaniah the prophet and from my perspective, I can see that between me and you as the people of God sitting at rest, filled with the Holy Spirit, drawn from all nations, Jews and Gentiles, with the favor of God resting on you, I as an Old Testament prophet can tell that there is a step change somewhere between me and you. I just can't see what the steps look like. The same is true of the Old Testament prophets. They could tell there was a big step change coming, and they knew it was both judgment and restoration. They just couldn't see where the steps were. For them, everything was condensed into one reality that may have been for them in their mind 30 years hence, 100 years hence. They didn't know what it would look like. They just knew that judgment was coming and restoration would follow. But for you as the people of God, reading the Old Testament and the New Testament, you and I can see there are three steps. The first step is the step that we're reading about the moment in the prophet's mind's eye. The fact as they spoke that in 587 BC, the Babylonians would roll into town. They would strip the land, destroy the city and the temple. They would carry off the people that they thought were valuable off to Babylon. We had that lament song that we can read in the Psalms. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How can we who are walking to Babylon in chains, how can we, how can we respond to our oppressors who say, sing us a song about your God? How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? But what the prophets also said was that after two generations, they said 70 years, and after those two generations, in 538 BC, a new superpower came, Persia. It overthrew Babylon. And by the grace of God, the foreign policy of Cyrus, king of Persia, was that every displaced people should be allowed to go back to their homeland. Who else but God? could decree through the prophets even before judgment happened how restoration would take place 70 years hence. 
And so the first step, we can read about it, we understand in history. There is much history written about this outside the Bible that tells us the destruction of Jerusalem and the people coming back. We read about it in Ezra and Nehemiah coming back and rebuilding the walls and rebuilding the temple and, and wave upon wave of people coming back into Jerusalem and into Judea. This restoration that the prophets foretold ahead of time. And yet the people knew with their walls rebuilt in a fairly poor way. And the temple rebuilt only a shadow of its former self. And only certain people returning. They knew that the words of the prophets had not yet been fulfilled. Because the prophets spoke about a glorious restoration that would be even greater than what was before. Yet when they saw the impoverished state of the city and the temple. And also when they recommissioned the temple, unlike at the time of Solomon when the glory of the Lord fell and the priests couldn't even stay in the temple because it became so thick and dense in the presence of the Lord that they couldn't stand it. And yet when we read about the restoration of the temple following the people coming back in 538 BC, there is no account of the return of the glory of the Lord. They commissioned the temple, but there is no hint whatsoever that the glory of the Lord fell upon the second temple. And so the people knew the, be the best must surely be yet to come. That came 700 years later. And to everyone's surprise, God walked into his temple on two feet. No one saw it coming. Jesus Christ, a carpenter from Nazareth, fulfilled all the prophet's words, the Lord will come and he will dwell among his people. He will come again into his temple and what will he do? He'll be like a refining fire and a launderer's soap. And what did Jesus do? He turned over the tables and said, this has become a den of robbers. And he declared the fact that if the people didn't return to the Lord, then once again, judgment would come. And in 70 AD, the Romans ruled into town. For four years, actually, they besieged Jerusalem. And finally, they broke through and they slaughtered all around them in 70 AD. They butchered the people of Israel. And they tore the temple down. That's why Jesus wept 40 years before that, crying out, would you not return to the Lord. How I want to gather you under my wings like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would have none of me. And he foretold the slaughter that was to come. And yet in his mercy, he said, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it again in three days. You see, Jesus rebuilt the temple 
40 years before it was even destroyed. The body that was resurrected is the temple. And you and I are the temple of God now on earth. The people from every nation, as the prophets foretold, filled with the Spirit of God, with the presence of God among us and in us. We are the temple on earth of God today. The temple of Jerusalem lies in ruins, as Jesus predicted 2,000 years, 3,000 years on. You and I are the temple of God that the prophets spoke about. And yet, we also recognize that surely there is still better to come. And as those who have the New Testament, we have the privilege of knowing that there is going to be a final day of judgment and a final day of restoration. As John talks about in Revelation 21, he talks about this day of there's a final judgment, and then he speaks about the, the glory of the Lord and this remarriage between heaven and earth. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the new earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. The sea in, in the Scriptures is the metaphor for chaos. And I saw the holy city and the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. That's the ultimate vision of which the prophets spoke. But unlike us, they had no idea how it was going to take place. We may wonder over these weeks why we're reading these words of the prophets spending hours each week reading them. Surely if we are on step two, looking forward to step three, why would we be looking back towards step one? The answer is because these words were written down for our benefit and also because the fact the Lord always works in the same way in every step. There is always judgment and there's always restoration. That's the way the Lord continues to work today. Sometimes I think we're concerned about this word judgment, but judgment means that God is putting things right. I think one of the reasons why I find it so disturbing, why I think we as a society find it so disturbing, is because we are quite content with the status quo. We have food to drink, food to eat, water to drink, homes to live in, relative peace and security and safety. I wonder if we went to different parts of the world where there are children working 18 hours a day to mine the minerals to build our mobile phones, sometimes at the end of a gunpoint in modern-day slavery, which is greater now than it has ever been in the history of mankind, I wonder if they would read these words and understand them in a very different way. I wonder if they would say, bring on that day of judgment. I think they would. I was really struck recently by reading some words written by Billy Graham or spoken by Billy Graham in 1980. He said that if God does not judge our Western society, he will have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. 
The sin of Sodom included sexual perversion and the lack of care for the poor. Through Ezekiel, the Lord declared that Sodom's sins were pride, gluttony, and laziness, while the poor and needy suffered outside her door. One of the surest ways of determining whether a society has an issue with idolatry is seeing if there, an, if there are poor and needy outside its door. It's the surest way of seeing if there's idolatry in a society. Are there poor and needy outside our door? I think often we may read the Ten Commandments and think that the one about idolatry is the one that applies to us least. I wonder if it's the one that applies to us most. In the West, our idols may no longer be made of carved wood or stone. They may be made of high-tech. They may be made of silicon and metal alloy. Or they may have no physical form whatsoever. An idol is anything that takes the place of God. So we as Christians might say, God gives me purpose, meaning, and fulfillment. God governs the way I act. Thoughts of God comfort me when I'm down. I desire more of God. God is often in my thoughts. I read about God. I talk about God. I make friends with those who are also committed to God. God is the focal point around which my existence hangs. But subtly, good things given to us by the Lord can become the most powerful idols. In fact, the better the gift that God gives us, the greater the danger. My career gives me purpose, meaning, and fulfillment. Sex governs the way I act. Thoughts of holidays comfort me when I'm down. I desire more power. My appearance is often in my thoughts. I read about sport. I talk about sport. I make friends with those who are also committed to sport. Money is the focal point around which my existence hangs. The best way to confront idolatry is not by rejecting all the good things God has given us and becoming joyless and negative. We, we see too much of that, I think, in Northern Irish Christianity, where there's that sense of the last thing a Christian should ever do is enjoy themselves. But the opposite is equally a danger. That we would just give in to all of the damaging trends that pervade society around us. But by thanking the Lord for His goodness, for everything that He's given us, by placing everything at His disposal, by holding on to things lightly, and being willing to give away what we suspect is starting to have a grip on us. We can overcome idolatry in our lives with the Lord's help.
Nothing insults idols as much as giving them away. Idols promise the world but deliver nothing because they have nothing to give. Lives are wasted and lost chasing after idols. I suppose just to give one example of this, it could be in in some places if I were to place a bottle of Prosecco on a table here, that it would be seen as horrific, that alcohol is something that we should never have any contact with whatsoever, that anything that smacks of enjoying a good meal and pleasure is to be frowned upon. But equally, I have met people who live for that bottle of Prosecco. I'm not even talking about alcoholism. I'm talking about people who throughout their working day cannot wait to half past five and that bottle of Prosecco. I'm not talking about alcoholism. I'm talking about what gets us through the day. Those are the two extremes that we must avoid. Thinking that God is some sort of spoiled sport, instead knowing that he is a God who gives good gifts. But those good gifts must never replace God himself. Because as the prophet Jonah realized, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. You see, the most damaging thing about idols is that they rob us of an intimate relationship with the lover of our souls, Jesus Christ. And there is nothing that can replace an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, our Lord. One of the things I found most difficult, I'm sure many of you have too, in reading over the last month the words of the prophets, is the, is the jealousy, the, the anger, the sense of betrayal, the upset that God expresses through the prophets. And for much of these last four weeks and in our immersed group, I've been wondering, Is this not just very uncomfortable? But over this last week, the Lord has given me a different perspective. And as the perspective of Scripture, that whenever we worship other gods, ones that we've made with our own hands, God becomes terribly upset. And the same passionate determination and love and jealousy and fury and compassion that God spoke through the prophets is what sent Jesus Christ to the cross.
Jesus set his face like flint towards Jerusalem and hung on the cross and cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. Why? Because he had come for his bride. And the judgment of hell and sin fell upon him. The love of your heavenly Father for you is not a mild and delicate love. Is it a passionate love beyond our imagination? And when we read the words of the prophets of the Old Testament and the jealous love and fury and tenderness and anger and restoration and the tears that we read about. As followers of Christ, let's say, thank God. Because that same love caused Jesus Christ to be mocked and spat upon and betrayed and deserted and beaten and nailed to a cross. Today the Lord is calling us to turn towards him in faithful love. Let's do that, not just because it's the right thing to do, not just because it brings salvation to our souls, not just because it'll help us to step into a place where we can warn people around us of the judgment that is to come, but also, and perhaps primarily, because we cannot bear to hurt God. I believe if we do that, He will delight in us with gladness. With His love, He will calm all our fears. He will even rejoice over us with joyful songs. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would forgive me, that you would forgive us, that whenever we read the words of the prophets so often, our primary response is, is one of horror and not one of thankfulness. Lord, re-envision us. Show us afresh what your love looks like, a love of such depth and height and breadth and width. There's no getting over it or around it or under it. Lord, thank you for, for giving your life for us. Thank you that the full fury of heaven fell upon Jesus and not upon us that you yourself took our punishment, that we might go free. 
And Lord, we thank you on behalf, particularly of the poor, but for all of us that judgment is coming. And Lord, we want to confess today that one of the reasons why we find these words so disturbing is because we often live at ease in Zion. Lord, may we hear afresh the voice of the poor of this world. May we as a society recognize afresh the idols which titillate our fancy, which dull our love, which make us less than human and turn us away from the true lover of our souls. So Lord, today we repent and turn to you. May you fill our affections. May again we become passionate people. And Lord, may that passion be seen in worship and may that passion be seen in our tender compassion for the poor. Lord, we know that you're coming and you're coming to bring judgment on the earth. Lord, we repent of being party to all things that need to be judged. Show us the idols in our lives. Show us what takes our affection and gives us false comfort. And stir us up by your Holy Spirit to be full of compassion and love and generosity and peace and determination that our praise may be for you alone. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen.